0: Uh, this session is entitled Lincoln and Civil Liberties it follows upon the, se- the earlier session with Alan Gelzo, uh, who talked about uh, election year 1860 with focus on the Cooper Institute address as contrasted uh, by the uh, earlier 1858 house divided address uh, and with some references uh, to the first inaugural my guess is Uh, As we go through, especially this um, annual message, not annual message, but the message to Congress in special session of July 4th, 1861, I'll probably direct our attention back to the first inaugural address because uh, that speech, uh, um, not short but not long either, about medium length as first inaugurals go, or as inaugural addresses go, uh, there is a lot in there that Alan could only deal uh, with so much given the other material we had you read. Uh, But I think there are some important elements in that speech that we see reappearing, actually very explicitly, in the July 4th address that I think are very indicative of Lincoln's approach to holding political office, especially at the national level. And I want to make sure that we get that. So over and above the specific question of whether or not Lincoln was a dictator or a tyrant, uh, whether he abused executive power, in flat contradiction to what he was counseling way back in the 1830s, right? With a you know, reverence for the laws and the Constitution. Uh, uh, out, outside of, or over and above even that particular question, I want us to see Lincoln's approach to the office and whether we can learn something about what he was teaching the nation about the proper relationship between officers of uh, the government and their authority as well as their relationship to the people. What was the role of public opinion? Um, And given Lincoln, I would argue, Lincoln's uh, great uh, respect for public opinion, public sentiment is what he called it in other places, um, how do we see that respect fleshed out, as it were, in his own uh, practice and the words that he uttered publicly, especially to uh, the representatives of the people, Uh, when he was president. And I think this is something that your students uh, can learn a lot uh, uh, from. Uh, What does it mean to be an officer of the government when you live in a self-governing regime? Uh, In fact, um, if you can turn, this puts me to mind of another passage, if you can turn to the first debate uh, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, that's in your Language of Liberty Fornieri volume. Um, That's the debate at Ottawa. Where does it begin? 261. Is that right? Yeah, and you remember uh, these debates, uh, the opening address was an hour with an hour and a half rejoinder, and then followed by a half-hour rebuttal to that. Um, So Lincoln's comments are going to be in the middle of that. If we can turn to that real quickly, you'll see a statement that is one of his most famous statements regarding uh, public opinion. You guys remember where he talks about uh, public sentiment in this uh, debate? I'm trying to find it. I have more than one version of this, so I'm kind of hopping around here. Let's see. Hold on one second. It's a passage where he's talking about public sentiment. Let's look at 286, where he's talking about public sentiment and, in particular, um, why he is so troubled by what Judge Douglas is saying publicly. Not even so much what he's doing, but what he's teaching people to expect from their rulers on 286. right Right at the top, he says, there is no danger of our going over there and making war upon them. Then what is necessary for the nationalization of slavery? It is simply the next Dred Scott decision. This is something we've already commented on. It is merely for the Supreme Court to decide that no state under the Constitution can exclude it, just as they have already decided that under the Constitution neither Congress nor the territorial legislature can do it. Okay? They, made that, they issued that ruling in the Dred Scott case just one year prior. Lincoln says all that's left, since states in the South have approved slavery, Dred Scott, the court, by a 72 decision, rules that neither Congress nor the territorial legislature, contrary to popular sovereignty, according to Douglas, not even a territorial legislature or a Congress can ban slavery from territories. What's the only place left in the Union where slavery so far is banned? In the free states, by definition. So if slavery can go into federal territories. if It can go where slavery is already uh, authorized. The only place left is the states. Now, remember, the court has already ruled that why, can, why under what authority can you take your property, your chattel property, slaves, to federal territory? Under the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause, right? You have a right to that property. The Fifth Amendment, in short, restricts Congress's authority under Taney's interpretation, not Lincoln's. Well, gee, what's left to be done? How can states ban slavery? Under what authority? (coughs) Not under popular sovereignty, right? Because popular sovereignty was overruled by the Dred Scott case. So what power would they have? Because notice, I'm sorry, Tenth Amendment. Now, Douglas would argue that the Tenth Amendment authorizes that. But Douglas doesn't bring up the, up the Tenth Amendment because he also wants to look like he supports the Dred Scott case. But what Lincoln is saying is all we need is one more court case that says, well, gee, if you do have property and you should be able to go wherever you want in the Union with your property, why shouldn't you be able to take your slaves to a free state and have that Fifth Amendment protection for your slaves there just as well? What's that? Well, anywhere, okay. So that's what he means when we just, all that's left, all that's necessary for the nationalization of slavery in principle is one more Supreme Court case that says not even a state can ban slavery because property is protected under the Fifth Amendment due process clause. And there was a case that was dealing with that, the Lemon case that was going through the courts right then and there. And of course, uh, Chief Justice Taney was still the Chief Justice. And I mentioned the seven-to-two decision. One of those justices, Justice Curtis, he had resigned from the court after the Dred Scott case. That was the last term he served. He only served uh, seven terms. Seven terms? Uh, it may have been six terms. F- Fifty-one to fifty-seven. Um, he was so frustrated with Roger Taney, among other things, he left the court. So you were one—you know—you had that one key dissenter who is now gone. Um, Fifty seven. The end of the 56-57 term, Justice Curtis uh, resigned from the court.
1: Which meant that she can be replacing Yeah. Which means that it was going to be first
0: like Joe's replacement. Oh yeah, that question. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's the contest, but back to the to, to the passage here. All that's necessary is a Dred Scott case, right? When that is decided at Westin, the whole thing is done. This being true, and this being the way as I think that slavery is to be made national, let us consider what Judge Douglas, right, former state, uh, state Supreme Court justice in Illinois, let's see what J- Douglas is doing every day to that end. In the first place, most importantly, let us see what influence he is exerting on public sentiment. In this, and this is the famous passage, in this and like communities, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. He's pointing out here that it's not enough to say, well, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't ruled yet, or there's no law in the books that does this. What he's saying is what paves the way for laws, what makes the nation receptive to court opinions, court decisions, is what their lawmakers or just what their movers and shakers, the people who shape public opinion, teach them about what's legitimate. You see that? What does Judge Douglas... Doing what does Lincoln claim Douglas has been doing by preaching popular sovereignty, by preaching the notion that blacks do not have rights that the white man is bound to respect. Yeah, in other words, whether slavery goes into Nebraska or Kansas, we in Illinois, should we be able to express our opinion about that? No. Okay. It only affects those settlers. What he's teaching, uh, what Douglas is teaching people to think about Is or to forget about what the true ground of their rights are. That's why Lincoln emphasizes the natural rights of the black man. To emphasize the natural rights is to emphasize the rights that we all possess as human beings. It's to remind whites of the grounds of their own rights. That's why he spends so much time talking about black people in a state where not a single black person can vote for him. He's doing it to make it in the interests of whites to do the right thing. As Alan Gelzo so, so well pointed out, uh, it's not enough just to tell people to do the right thing. It, 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 you can guarantee it all the more so if you can show them that it actually will redound to their benefit. <laughs> it, it's, in, it's in their interest to do the right thing. Okay. What is Douglas doing? He says, he, uh, he says, this must be borne in mind is also the additional fact that Judge Douglas is a man of vast influence. So great that it is enough for many men to profess to believe anything when they once find out that Judge Douglas professes to believe it. Consider also the attitude he occupies as the head of a large party, a party which he claims has a majority of all the voters in the country. So enough on that passage. But essentially he's saying because Judge Douglas is a former state justice, Supreme Court justice, he's the incumbent senator, um, he's the head of his political party, at least in Illinois, This makes him a man of vast influence, and what he says shapes the way people think about how they ought to be governing themselves. Um, Lincoln will later say that that, that others are debauching the public mind. Uh, They're corrupting Americans' understanding of of who they are and how they ought to uh, uh, allow themselves to be ruled. Um, What Douglass teaches us about the Declaration of Independence, what Justice Taney teaches, teaches us about the Declaration of Independence, and then you've got Lincoln teaching us about the Declaration of Independence. Why are we being taught all these things? Why are we making these references, as Alan pointed out, uh, to the founders now? It's because of the battle for public opinion. You win that battle, how hard is it, gonna get, uh, how hard is it uh, going to be for you to get a law passed? That's just a formality. Now, it's an important formality. Right? We're a nation of laws, the rule of laws, what we call lex rex, where law is king rather than a particular person and their arbitrary will. I'm not saying that laws aren't important or executive decisions or Supreme Court cases, but what Lincoln is saying is those things just come at the end. And notice what happens when you haven't prepared the people for it. You can get an overwhelming decision like Dred Scott and what happens? There's a hue and a cry, an uproar as a result of it. Why was there such a great uproar? Because the Supreme Court of the United States had never ruled in that fashion before. It was contrary to all precedents. It was contrary to almost all state precedents as well. They had not cultivated public opinion sufficiently. That's what Lincoln is trying to do. That's why he comes out of political obscurity in 1854 to complain about what Douglas was doing in 1854 with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The principle of that act was contrary to what the nation had been doing hitherto or up until that point in time. And that's what he said, whoa, 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 this country is really going in the wrong direction. If Kansas, Nebraska, the, the, the principle of Kansas, Nebraska becomes a prevailing view of what self-government, i.e. popular sovereignty, in Douglass's uh, mind, uh, really means. Uh, any questions on that before we move to um, our, our readings for this session? I wanted to talk about public sentiment here because it's something that Lincoln not only uh, teaches us about, he practices what he preaches as well uh, in his speeches. I want to make sure that we catch that. All right, let's look at uh, this July 4th uh, address uh, in the Fournier. It begins on page 574. Uh, Except for speeches like the Gettysburg Address and inaugural addresses, Uh, I guess more specifically, when Lincoln spoke to Congress, he did not literally speak to Congress. Some of you guys might know this already. Um, The tradition had been, the custom had been, that you did not go to the Congress sitting with the two uh, branches assembled there and speak uh, personally. You sent over your address, and it was read by a clerk. Uh, that practice was, was followed in uh, July 4th as well. You would think, wow, this is such a, uh, a tumultuous time. Why didn't Lincoln go and deliver the address himself? Um, he was following custom by having it read. And that's why you'll see in a, in a lot of Lincoln's writings commas where they shouldn't be. You're like, that's. I mean, Lincoln's a lawyer. I know he didn't go to much schooling, but even he knows that that's grammatically incorrect. He wrote for the ear, not for the eye. In other words, he wrote his speeches and punctuated them for, as if someone who didn't know him was going to read it and would have to pause whenever he saw a comma. Uh, so those were his, as it were, stage directions. Um, what's happening here? What's happened between March 4th and July 4th? A lot. <laughs> Remember, Lincoln comes into power as a peacetime president. I say that knowing that, of course, seven states by that time had seceded, or at least had passed ordinances for secession, right, removing themselves or severing their connection politically uh, to the rest of the Union. Um, What happens, of course, is the firing on Fort Sumter uh, in the middle of April, and then Lincoln's calling forth uh, uh, volunteers and and militia uh, uh, to number about 75,000. And what does he do here? Um, Notice Lincoln says he has to, um, he he appeals to uh, the Constitution to call Congress into session. They're not in session. In fact, their session ended in March. Uh, It was as if they, you know, I think they just kind of hung out, listened to uh, uh, the inaugural address of Lincoln, and then they went home. Because their term, or their, their congressional session was finished, and it concluded. They wouldn't be coming back till the fall. Uh, it's not like today where they're almost always in session, right? And they take a few breaks. Before, their breaks were huge. They were really long. So what Lincoln has to do is he has to call them back into session. He has authority under the Constitution to do that under special uh, circumstances, and this is a very special one, of course. Uh, so that's what he's doing. Now, when Lincoln calls them into session on uh, in April 15th, when he issues forth the call to come you know, 80 days later, uh, does he just kind of wait around? for them to show up? No, he actually gives an account to the representatives of the people and the states of the Union, an account of what he has been doing as president in those intervening months, those two and a half months. Right there, we should, we should notice something uh, about this, uh, that Lincoln felt he was, uh, it was incumbent upon him especially uh, given the actions that he was taking to explain himself to the country. Is this something that dictators do? No. Now, does that mean dictators don't talk? Sure, they, you, know, if you watch these you know, reels of, of Mussolini, Stalin, and Hitler. They, 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 re- they recognize that in one way or another they need to maintain contact with the people, but they, you don't ever see them explaining themselves to their people as if it was something owed to them. Uh, I can't remember, outside of this speech, uh, and addressed by any president that re- makes so many references to the Constitution, uh, quotes, verbatim quotes from the Constitution, uh, than this one does. Uh, we keep talking about having some splaining to do. <laughs> Lincoln believes he has some splaining to do. He has some explanation to, uh, to offer uh, the citizens And notice he doesn't just make an address that he hopes goes to the papers. His explanation is to their political representatives, Congress, both House, uh, and the Senate. The beginning of this speech, right, he begins by saying that that they're very convening is authorized by the Constitution. Article 2, Section 3, i have having my margins. Every time he makes a reference to the Constitution or some power he has exercised, I say, well, where does he get that power? Uh, upon what authority does he have it? And I've got him down uh, on my margin. And so right out of the box, he teaches them he's paying attention to the Constitution. Now... He's going to get to certain spots of that Constitution where people are going to vicar about whether he actually had that authority or exercised it responsibly or not. But at least what we, what we find here is already he's put us on notice, or at least our representatives. He's taught them, if you're going to judge my actions as president, especially when Congress was out of session, what is the only relevant standard? The Constitution. The constitution. It's not whether it produced the right results whether we thought it was a neat thing he did. Right? In that sense, it doesn't seem to me that he makes this a pragmatic uh, appeal, although I, th- I think we can see some, some uh, at least practical or prudent considerations that he brings in later. Uh, but at least from the get-go, by saying, in the very first sentence, right? having been convened on an extraordinary occasion, no. a not ordinary occasion, as authorized by the Constitution... Your attention is not called to any ordinary subject of legislation. He is calling them into session to do what? To get to work a little early. (laughs) Earlier than they had expected because they've got some business to tend to. Lincoln has been tending to it up till now. And he's going to explain precisely what he's been doing, and especially those areas in which public attention has been called to it. That's his polite way of saying, people are upset. <laughs> people, some people are complaining about how I've used my power. But at least at the outset, what, what I like about this is he equips the reader quite clearly to know what the standard is by which uh, he, is to judge, uh, he is to be judged. Did
2: Congress continue with its regular schedule throughout the
0: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know um, whether the, the sessions um, were, extended. were extended or not. I I, I presume it would de- it depend on what the, what the, the progress of the war was at that time. I, I remember, I mean, in times of war, what branch of government assumes more a, authority and responsibility? The executive. And so, for that, in that regard, Congress wouldn't necessarily need to be in session most of the year. In principle, uh, but factually speaking i, I don 't know how, how if their sessions as a matter of course now for the next five years actually were extended as a as a, uh, on a regular basis or not um, I, I, my, I'm, I'm, my speculation would be that yes they, they actually did hang out longer than not but i don 't i don 't't I don't <coughs> uh, side chapter in verse on that i 'm not quite sure but I know that when andrew johnson 's president they passed uh,
2: New rule that they don't go out of session because they don't want to leave him alone. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was the first time that they stayed in session Uh,
1: continuously. But but they weren't in session this summer, right? He starts reconstruction, and they're not there until the fall.
0: Fair enough. All right. So after he says... Constitution is where we need to look for anything that I'm doing and what you will be charged to do. Lincoln uses this address in a way to pass the baton in some respect to Congress. What does he do next? He sets the context for his actions. He doesn't rush you right into about that habeas corpus thing. He he cozies up to that. Uh, and, And I don't mean this merely as a rhetorical ploy, as it were. I mean it as something that a prudent officeholder should do. He should give us the context for his actions. And what is the context? One word. War. War. Or secession, if you want to be more polite, because that's what he begins with, right? South Carolina, he ticks off. These are the states, six of them. Then he adds Texas two pages later. Six states, seven if you include Texas, where he says the functions of the federal government were found to be generally suspended. Yeah. Pretty calm. He goes on, right? Forts, arsenals, dockyards, custom houses, movable and stationary property. These were seized and not kind of stealthily or just kind of behind the scenes. He says, in open defiance, right? Open hostility to the government. It's clear what they're doing. Right, They were held in open hostility to this government. Armed forces had been organized, were organized, all, all organizing all avowedly with the same hostile purpose. Uh, what is he setting up? What argument is he obviously setting up here? These actions precipitated by certain states, contrary to the Constitution, contrary even to many of their own citizens who didn't believe in Secession, or these actions that we're taking. These actions were the ones that precipitated the actions I have since taken and call you, charge you, uh, to fulfill your constitutional duty. Lincoln, in short, is not acting unilaterally, at least I think there's an (coughs) implicit uh, argument being made here. In short, on page 576, middle of that paragraph, the purpose to sever the Federal Union was openly avowed. This is no minor issue that Lincoln has had to deal with. No minor conflict or controversy that has cropped up in the nation. This is the greatest disaster short of, you know, as we put it in 1838, a Napoleon, you know, striding the Atlantic to come over uh, and take over. Uh, a threat to the union, a very palpable threat from within has occurred. That's the context. Next paragraph, he says, Finding this condition of things and believing it to be an imperative duty upon the incoming executive, namely him, to prevent, if possible, the consummation of such attempt to destroy the Federal Union, a choice of means to that end became indispensable. And he says, my first statement to the nation was my inaugural address. Uh, That was my statement to you in terms of what I believe the grounds were for my own election Uh, He talked about the Republican Party, their platform, he cited previous speeches, so people could know what to expect from this new uh, administration. To avoid the, the, the destruction of the Federal Union, to prevent that from taking place, Lincoln says, he had to decide, well, to protect the country, if that's the goal, what are the means to that goal? And he's already told us the only place to look for those means are going to be found in the Constitution. Then he brings up Fort Sumter in the context of a few other forts. Uh, and what, what's the general point he makes about how he finessed and managed uh, that, that difficulty? What, what, what in general does he argue regarding uh, the attempt to try to uh, resupply, at least in terms of food, not militarily, but at least in terms of sustenance, uh, the, the men who were at uh, Fort Sumter? What's the general point Is he trying that he's trying to establish there?
1: I'm not sure if this is the right answer, but he says that at the bottom of the first paragraph on 577 that he would just merely, it became a mere matter of getting the garrison safely out of the fort. He downplays it substantially. Oh,
0: yeah, right. Uh, but the point, but this had to be done. In other words, something rather than nothing. Why, why would inaction in his mind, as he understood his authority as president, would be a, an abrogation of his responsibility, uh, a failure to answer the call of duty, for him to do nothing?
1: It would be a construction of a voluntary policy. Meaning? In other words, to do nothing would be to acquiesce. Ah,
0: okay. And, go ahead.
2: Yes. Public opinion, they would, both um, abroad and at home,
0: would be ruinous. Right, so for Lincoln to, to do, right then. Yeah, for Lincoln to do nothing, to, to avoid provoking the first shot and all that sort of stuff, would have been a signal to the American people, now divided. It would have been a signal to them about how they should think about this secession, and it would have been a signal to foreign powers. Okay? For me to do nothing as president would be to say, what about secession? It's okay. Yes, you may divide the union in this fashion without permission of the other states. Yes, you may revoke the results of a legitimate election. By the way, my name didn't appear on any southern ballot. Okay. <laughs> By the way, you know, everybody mentions that. I even mentioned it. I just did. Um, you know why his name didn't appear on any southern ballot? Who printed the ballots? Okay, the, the parties. <laughs> Not the states. The parties did. That's a, that's a result of uh, turn-of-the-century... Uh, secret ballot, Australian ballot. Late, yeah. yeah it's, this is, it, yeah. It's not till like, the 1880s till you get a, a true devotion to uh, secret ballots. These elections were public. You went to the table that had that sign, you know, your sign or your guys at, and it was very public, very open. Um, no chats. What's that? No chads. <laughs> no chads. <Chats. laughs> no, you just made your mark. <laughs> Although apparently you, I don't know, there might have been some chads. Uh, Alan said that sometimes uh, you just kind of nice. cut out. Cut out some names on your tickets if you, on your ticket if you don 't want to uh, uh, endorse them, uh, but again, in general, what Lincoln was trying to point out here was his concern was for visible authority that he needed to exert it was his responsibility to exert national authority in the situation, and he didn 't do it by force he did it by this benign means or at least an attempt to benignly resupply. The fort with mere sustenance, sustenance, uh, sustenance excuse me, and/or and pulling them out just for their own safety sake. And as he puts it, notice on five seventy-seven, this could not be allowed. Starvation was not yet upon the garrison. Second, long, uh, the long paragraph there, and ere it would be reached, Fort Pickens might be reinforced. That's in uh, Florida. This last would be a clear indication of policy. Right? What is the direction the administration is going? And would better enable the country to accept the evacuation of Sumter as a military necessity, not an evacuation as a result of policy. Yeah, we agree. These really are your forts, even though they're not. These are federal forts. But let us get our men out. Uh Uh-uh. Lincoln wanted the nation to know that if we're going to evacuate it, it's on the basis of military necessity. We have every right and duty to be there. And he's not even exerting the full extent of his right as a president to resupply those forts. Or that board in particular. Okay, so what Lincoln was concerned with was visible authority. The country needed to see that there is a response <coughs> to what he believes is an attempt <laughs> to break up the union, rebellion, <coughs> in his mind. There is a response, and this is the mode that he was going to take. So, what, uh, what did he have to uh, call for? This? Is that
1: uh, was that no, uh, is there any. Uh, authority, any power of the executive to
0: take action without uh, consulting each other? Yes. Um, the first thing, just to mention, Article 2, Section 3. Article 2 is deals with what branch of government? The executive. executive. Section 3 says that the president has the power to call Congress back into session for special uh, situations. Yes. Now, what I, I think also is mean, part of your... Purpose, for, I'm sorry?
1: For the... Uh, since uh, there's, uh, there's a rebellion, there's a, uh, there's a crisis. That, for that crisis, does the executive has power to, to go to? I mean, to take action without consulting
0: the. the uh, that's what the balance. That's what the balance of this this uh, address answers. Does that makes sense. In other words, he goes on to explain what actions he took and which he thought were strictly legal, which he thought some people might find debatable, etc. We're going to go through those.
1: So if he has to go, he has to call the, um, the section first. He has to uh, inform mean, the, uh, the legislative first before he can take action.
0: No. No, no. He has called them into session. He called them into session back in April to come in July. They actually arrived. I think they were supposed to come on July 2nd, but... This is the address he gives him on July 4th. In that intervening time, since Congress is out of session, he believed it was his duty as the executive to address this national problem. The debate is precisely over the actions that he took. Were they legitimate or not? I am arguing he gives us the standard of the Constitution by which we can judge his actions, and now we're going to see what those actions were. Okay?
2: Um, I had a question about Fort Sumter. Is it it, um, it just luck that the commander happened to be pro-union or did all people in the the federal military stay low like obviously the leaders on
1: his
2: commission? No, a
0: whole host of generals resigned their commission. In fact, Lincoln points out in a later speech, I think it's the Corning letter, where he points out, gee, there might come a point in time where people will be upset at me for not taking stronger action. When I had these guys, I mean, he uh, asked Lee to to stay on, right? And Lee resigned. He says there was a point in time where I could have imprisoned all these guys. How many lives? Talk about Monday morning quarterbacking. It would have been saved. Okay, that's unfair to do to Lincoln to be sure. But well, Lincoln is already thinking about history, and he's like, boy, people are upset for me for what, what actions I took, in which I consider to be uh, totally legitimate. Um, even though some are debatable to, to, uh, in the minds of some, what hap- what's going to happen down the road when people think, wh- when they find out that I had these guys in my grasp and I didn't kind of bend the rules or the Constitution or weak, weak, nudge, nudge and get these guys here. Maybe I'm going to be blamed for not doing more. So yes, there were. Um, so are you saying it's, it's a, the just dumb Pro luck that Anderson that. was pro-union? Yeah,
2: there were other... Other bases that, like, people just kind of walked off the job? Like, I mean, it could have been easy, like, the guys at the Fort Center could have
0: just gotten canoes and rode over to South Carolina. Well, well, look, what happened in in most of the forts in the South is in arsenals, federal depositories where there was money, munitions, etc., those weren't taken by loyalists. Now, if you're asking for a comparative sample, I I have no idea how many were pro-union and how many were, were, were not, but I would think that the lion's share in the South were of southern sentiment.
2: And we did read, I don't, I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't remember where, but about certain captains, like I think it was Norfolk, or they were talking about they had the chance to get the boats away, but they stayed too long and the clerics mm. came in. So, I mean, there was that back and forth and who was going to stay loyal and had the opportunity to hold on to the keys to things like Harper's Berry and stuff like that.
0: Good. Good.
1: Maybe you said this and I missed it. Didn't Lincoln also fear that if he acquiesced and allowed just evacuated Sumter, that uh, foreign nations would construe that as an acceptance of the sovereignty of the South? Absolutely. And that couldn't be allowed? Absolutely. Or he, or he would have foreign intervention? That's right. The problem with the term blockade?
0: Yeah, blockade's I think of all the things that Lincoln did, the one action that Arguably, one could say he treated the South as if it were a belligerent nation, was the blockade, the closing of ports. All the other ones, uh, so that one was finessed, but aside from that one, I think all the other ones, he, 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 he treats secession as if it was a really, 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 really large riot. In other words, a lot of American citizens just got out of control. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he has, to, he has to do it that way because right, he doesn't even consider the border states border states, right? He says border states, so-called, actually, middle states. Point? We're still border a point. United States. I am the president of all, however many states there are, I should know this. I'm president of all those states. I have an obligation to all of those citizens, a good, goodly number of them in a certain section of the Union, are violating the Constitution, and laws and treaties, uh, but I treat all of them as members of the union. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's move to uh, five seventy eight, five seventy nine. In it, right, right here, right after he has set up the context for the actions, he still doesn't get to his actions yet. What does he do? He has us think of, a little bit about the nature. Of free society and Republican. Here again, Lincoln puts on his kind of political philosophy hat. In the middle of a crisis, I think one of the great uh, glories of Lincoln is, is how uh, pensive he invites the nation to become. He invites us to think, not just to react. Right, this isn't a visceral president, as it were. This is a rational one, and he invites us to do the same thing. He invites us to be sober and deliberate. Uh, one point that, uh, that could have been made about the first inaugural today, we were, at, you know, Alan was asking, "Is this a, you know, is this a saber rattling type of uh, uh, address? Is it more Pambi? Um The last paragraph, the most famous paragraph of the first inaugural, right? The better angels of our nature. Lincoln didn't write that paragraph originally. The penultimate paragraph was the closing paragraph, and William Seward looked at that and said, "You know, into your hands, my fellow countrymen." it's like, ah. We need to even tone it down even a little more than your closing paragraph. And he gave him a sample, and Lincoln looked at it and said, oh, this is good, don't like this, like this, don't like this. He was a great reviser of suggestions, and he took Seward's draft, made it Lincolnian, and that's where we get the better angels of our nature. Seward had originally written The Guardian Angel of the nation. And Lincoln said, No, you know what point I really want to make here is not so much that we are going to be saved by some outside force. You know who's responsible to fix this mess? We are. And we have the ability to do it if we appeal to the better angels, not the lesser demons <laughs> of our nature. In other words, he acknowledges that we can do bad and we could do good. Boy, if there was ever a time for us, all of us, north, middle, and south, to do good, it's now. Let's calm down. Election's over. Let's appeal to the better angels of our nature. At Lincoln turns that into that majestic closing, but that was not the original draft. The original draft stopped just short of that paragraph. Okay? So what does he say? Bottom of 578. Right after he says, look, this issue has been forced upon us. I didn't choose it, but I need to react to it. I need to address it, better put. I have a constitutional responsibility to do so. So what does he say? After he says, they have forced upon the country the distinct issue, immediate dissolution, secession, or blood. This issue embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of man the question, whether a constitutional republic, here again he reminds us what kind of government we live in, how special it is and what it requires of us. It's different than what other nations require of their people. It's harder to live in a constitutional republic because we have to choose to be self-governing. It's a voluntary thing we do. In other countries, they don't have a choice. It's necessity. You do what you're told or off with your head. Here, we choose to impose the rules on ourselves whether a constitutional republic or democracy, a government of the people, by the same people. Boy, this is beginning to sound like some other speech. Can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity against its own domestic foes. External foes, that's a different question. It's a different set of strategies, a different set of, of authorities. The question is, wow, can we prevent ourselves from blowing up ourselves? Can a free society do it? Is it capable of doing it? Presents the question whether discontented individuals, too few in numbers to control administration, in other words, those who are outvoted, according to organic law in any case, can always, upon the pretenses made, in this case, dot dot dot, break up their government and thus practically, for all practical purposes, put an end to free government upon the earth. It forces us to ask, is there in all republics this inherent and fatal weakness. Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence? According to Buchanan's State of the Union Address, just a few months prior to this, December of 1860, what did Buchanan say? Does he disagree with Lincoln's definition of secession in the First Inaugural Address? What is, does Buchanan think secession is legitimate, legal, constitutional, however you want to call it? No! He, 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 in fact, this goes all the way back to Andrew Jackson, at least as far as Andrew Jackson, even to Andrew Jackson, dealing with Calhoun, dealing with the South Carolinians. He said it would turn the Union into a rope of sand if you could allow people to just decide to nullify this or that law and then ultimately to leave the Union if things don't go to their liking, right? When they're outnumbered, when they're in the minority. What's the difference between Buchanan and Lincoln? Buchanan thinks, even though, even though secession is wrong, can the executive do anything about it? No. So Buchanan argues, it's too weak to maintain its own existence. He doesn't make that explicit, obviously, but that's the implication of that speech. Secession is wrong, but I hope you guys don't do it. That'd be really bad. I, I mean, a true national bummer. But... Am I going to lift a finger to keep you guys from doing it? Mm, you know, if anybody can deal with it, it's got to be Congress, and even then. No, I don't really see what they can do to stop you guys. Mm-mm.
1: Wouldn't have Jackson have disagreed with the Senate's position? Oh, yeah. In his, in his own about
0: it, He would have sent ships? He
1: probably would have, you know, himself, right?
0: I don't think he would have... I'm playing the counterfactual here, but I don't think he would have been as uh, patient... Uh, as Lincoln was, and nor would he have been as low key in terms of what Li- what he would be willing to do to make his point. Now it's kind of unfair to Jackson because Jackson, of course, only had to deal with one state. Seven? Would he have been willing? Actually, probably would have. Never, I changed my mind. <laughs> All the more glory, <laughs> knocking out South Carolina, piece of cake. Seven. All right, now we got ourselves. I'm kidding. I don't know anything about Jackson. All right. But that's the question, right? Look at this. This is a state paper. A president who takes, who kind of has a time out in the middle of his explaining himself to say, let's think a little while about the nature of self government. He puts on the professorial robes here and teaches us about the nature of free society and shows us in some way, he puts us inside his head. This is what I'm wrestling with. I've got to deal with something, and I have a constitution that I, that's the only thing I can look at to determine what my means will be to achieve this end, preserving the union. Is there enough in this constitution that you guys established? I didn't establish this constitution. I didn't make myself president. What does the president get to do? <clears throat> Article two. And we we'll, will find out Article 1 a little bit as well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> article 2. And, you know, supremacy clause and some other things. Uh, but Article 2, okay, it says I can do this, I can do this. Is this going to be enough for me, for us as a people, to protect ourselves? He's trying to show us that, yes, as president, he has discretion. But, boy, could we be too strong? And I actually squash liberty. But if I, don't go, if, if I go in the other direction, the whole game could be lost. Do you suppose if Madison had gotten his whole national government and knocked down any laws made by the states? Yeah, of on the face of it, absolutely because the secession ordinance was what? Now, well, no, wait a second. Um, here might be an exception to that. If the secession ordinance was a uh, legislative matter, Yes, Congress would have the authority at that point to just negative it, but if it was a product of a convention, then you're going, "Huh." even then, I would say probably that they couldn't do it because unless the only way that the state could do it would be on the basis of the right to revolution, because anything apart from that, you would say, "Well, does a state have the authority to hold a convention to take this course of action?" Not according to the Constitution. Uh,
1: Perhaps,
0: Perhaps, but he does get to a a point in time where he he rejects his earlier opinion, especially the opinion that he makes in the Kentucky Resolutions that uh, argues that in very certain circumstances a state could maybe possibly (laughs) nullify a law. Uh, Go
1: ahead. Well, Madison has gotten his ultimate Uh, a complete veto, then the states wouldn't have been able to... When the states passed the secession laws, they would have either been vetoed at that point, or they would have been okay, which would have meant they had the right to do it.
0: The right would be determined by...
1: By the court.
0: Oh, no, not uh, by the court. By the Congress. Congress, Just by by a simple vote.
1: Because during Reconstruction, all the states had to nullify or veto their secession laws. So... They, those are all on the books of the states themselves. Right. That would have been decided well before mm-hmm. if the ultimate veto would pass. Mm-hmm. But Definitely. if you have the ultimate veto and you want to, I mean, paper is not going to keep
0: them from revolting. Right. That's a different question. Revolt, right? A revolution. You don't look at a piece of paper yeah. for that. It doesn't have to be in any constitution no. that's written there, in your heart, as it were. There was going to be a civil war. Right. Well, I mean. It, it, it's hard to, to impose that counterfactual at the tail end, 1860. Bam, drop it there because obviously events took certain course that led up to. it. Would you have had the Great Compromise of 1850? Would, I mean, would you have the, have had the Missouri Compromise? You know, a number of other events would have looked a little bit, maybe a lot a bit different. Um, all right, need to move us along here. Um, he gives he presents the example of Virginia again. Uh, what does he teach us about self government there? The crazy thing about Virginia is, I mean. First they voted against the secession, then they voted for it. But strangely, you want you want to think you think Lincoln acted as a dictator. What happened in Virginia? He says and there was a period of time, a month, right? Bottom of five seventy nine. He said although they submitted the ordinance for ratification to a vote of the people, they acted as if it was a fait accompli, right? As if it was already a done deal. He said, to be taken on a day then somewhat more than a month distance. Uh, distant, the convention and the legislature with leading men of the state, not members of either. These people aren't even elected in some instances. What are these people doing on behalf of the Commonwealth of Virginia? Acting as if they were elected. You know what I call that? Usurpation. Right? Leading men of the state, not members of either, the convention or the legislature, immediately commence acting as if the state were already out of the union. Is that self-government? No. And he uses the example of Virginia as an indication, as emblematic of the character of secession. It's no surprise, in other words, to Lincoln. He wants you to connect the dots here. It's no surprise that a state seceding, say Virginia, is acting in an unfree way. Once you reject, in Lincoln's mind, his understanding of how constitutions operate, how elections should be uh, uh, conducted and obeyed by both the winner and the loser, once you reject that, all bets are off in terms of your expectations, your hopes for establishing uh, a free society. The example of uh, the middle states, or what historians call the border states. What does Lincoln say there? They tried to adopt a third position, right? Not supreme loyalty to the Constitution as the Constitution mandates, supreme law of the land, and not outright secession. They What's this mushy middle position they've got? Oh, yeah. Armed neutrality. Not quite. I wouldn't say that's an oxymoron, but it, it, it galls Lincoln because armed neutrality on paper may sound fine and dandy. We're not taking sides. But like popular sovereignty, Lincoln says armed neutrality, if I were to acquiesce in that, would be tantamount to what? Helping the enemy. Yeah, helping the enemy. In other words, if this, especially because they're middle states, if they're not just neutral, they're not just, uh, oh, say Belgium, <laughs> right? Uh, if, they're, they're, if they're not just neutral, but they are armed, that kind of prevents lincoln from carrying out his commander-in-chief duties his presidential duties his faithfully ex- take care that the laws be faithfully ex- faithfully executed in all the states below that armed cordon, right so it may look like they're not taking sides but in fact it will have been secession accomplished if he were to respect that
1: i can't arrest you if i can't get to
0: you correct that's right that's right He says, at bottom, it recognizes no fidelity to the Constitution, no obligation to maintain the union. In other words, they, in fact, are violating the Constitution here by withdrawing their support of it. In the middle of that paragraph, he says, this would be disunion completed. All of this, why did I take all this time, which isn't a whole lot of time in this speech, why did I take all this time to take us through all this? Because he thinks you need to have all of these things in your mind, now to judge my actions appropriately. He thinks you are now suitably or sufficiently equipped to exercise judgment regarding this officer of the U.S. Constitution in the Executive Department. So what are they? Let's go through what he's done. 75,000 militia. and That's Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1. Secondly, he has closed the ports of what he's calling insurrectionary districts by proceedings he calls in the nature of a blockade. Right. That's Article 2, Section 1, Clause Eight. Okay. Notice so far, these all pertain to the executive branch. Does Congress need to be in session for Lincoln to do these things? No. no. Okay? Next paragraph. Other calls were made for volunteers to serve a certain amount of time, three years. Large additions to the regular Army and Navy. Okay, now whose turf are we on? Money, Money meaning Congress. Congress has the power to raise armies, right? Raise taxes. Yeah, they've got that power too. Okay. That's Article 1, Section 8, which is that long list of 18 powers, actually 17 plus the necessary and proper clause. Article 1, Section 8, clauses 11 through 16 deal with the, the war powers insofar as they are, are uh, vested in Congress. Right. So what does Lincoln say? These, oh, the previous paragraph so far all was believed to be strictly legal. Next paragraph. These measures, whether strictly legal or not, were ventured upon what appeared to be, appeared to whom? Lincoln. (laughs) What appeared to be, A, popular demand, and B, public necessity. Trusting then, as now, since I've got you guys gathered here, that Congress would readily ratify them. The belief in Lincoln's mind was this. Since Congress is not around to do these things, And it is my opinion as the executive, since I am around every day of the year, doing my job, because the laws always have to be executed, whereas making laws, you only need to be in session for a certain amount of time to do that. You don't have to have the legislature always in session to have a self-government. You do need an, uh, an executive all the time. Since the Congress wasn't around, hmm, does it appear to me that the nation would want me to act in the stead of Congress until such time as they can come and then take the baton from me at that point? Or would the nation um, say, no, Lincoln, even though uh, you know, they're burning bridges and tearing down telegraph lines in Maryland, uh, even though they're uh, uh, firing upon ships, taking over forts, arsenals, federal depositories, uh, mints, etc., you really need to wait for Congress to come back to D.C. and let them do their job. Uh, is, that, is that the sense that Lincoln thinks Uh, that he's being conveyed from the American people. No. He said, I needed to step in. And notice, he doesn't step in and just do whatever he wants willy-nilly. He steps in and acts as if, he's like, what would Congress do if they were in session? And this is right out of Locke, by the way. If you look at Locke, the latter chapters in Locke, he deals with two that um, address the subject of prerogative. One's entitled prerogative in the chapter right before that he, he, he talks about it. And in there, what Locke says is precisely what Lincoln does here. It doesn't make it right, by the way, but there's at least some philosophical support for this. The idea is that the executive, precisely because he has to carry out the will of the people, which is usually expressed through the legislature. When the legislature is not in session, the executive ought to act in their stead if the public good will be served by it. However its legitimacy would need to be ratified retroactively, which is to say, when the legislature gets back into session, it is their job to say, yes, 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 what were you thinking? Yes, yes, no way, Jose. It's their job at that point, as the fundamental representatives of the people in the legislative branch, to judge whether or not the discretion exercised, i.e. the prerogative exercised by the executive... Was their intention? Would have been their intention if they were in session, and that's why Lincoln says, trusting that Congress would readily ratify them, it is believed that nothing has been done beyond the constitutional competency of—I admit it—Congress. Congress. In other words, these actions in this paragraph aren't in Section Two, uh, Article Two. Agreed. But guess what? The crisis needed Congress's attention, and Congress was nowhere to be found. Not their fault. They were done. They went home. We weren't at war when they went home. We are now, have been, since April 15. (laughs) It was my job to take care of the country at that point. And so what I did is I I did what I could under Article 2, and then, man, I really (laughs) got to raise some armies and navies here. I don't have that authority. Congress does. What do you guys think? (laughs) His sense of what popular uh, consent or popular demand and public necessity was to do it well, here's the question: What did Congress do when they came back? By August 1861, Congress approves all of Lincoln's actions to that point, except for one thing. You know what that one thing is? Suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus.
2: But that's the Constitution too. Where? Constitution. Article, one.
0: Article One. Now well, we're going to get there. Okay. The point here is that this is all going according to Hoyle, at least as as far as Lincoln thinks. Uh, Congress does ratify, does say, yes, agreed. Yep, we would have done that. 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 Not this one over here. And that's what he deals with in the next paragraph. Especially in, in tandem with the calling forth of the militia, Lincoln did not believe that he, as Commander-in-Chief, would be successful in drawing up enough troops and actually getting them to the Capitol so they could receive orders. It's precisely because of Maryland. Now we get a little less pressure on South Carolina and Georgia and even Rhode Island, now let's pick on Maryland. (laughs) Because of what was happening in Maryland, Lincoln had to establish what he called a military line. He he needed to make sure that there would be a corridor to receive these troops, these officers, etc., uh, not, not only to get the army, but to fortify the capital, et cetera, that you can't just call forth, not ink, just ink on paper, calling forth the militia. He had to make sure that nobody would get in their way. And he thought the only way that they could do it, according to the discretion of his generals, right, was the establishment of military courts, tribunals, commissions, and in concert with that, suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. Uh, what is this writ, by the way? Quick definition, somebody? You may have the body. Give me the body. Yeah, it's good Latin. Corpus, body. You have to present the body within a short amount of time. I think it's typically a couple of days. You can't stick somebody in jail and say, oh, they did something wrong, but I'm not going to tell you what that wrong was. I'll tell you when I tell you. Go ahead. Oh,
1: that's what I was
0: going to say.
2: You have to charge
0: somebody. Yeah, you have to present the body. In other words, you have to put him in front of a court and tell the judge... This guy did the following. Does it matter if they're
2: um, an American citizen or a
0: foreigner? I think the concern here, well, more principally, is if it's a citizen. Foreigners, we deal with uh, in a different manner, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it, to keep from crying. I mean, this is one of those long-standing privileges that just goes back to the English common law, right? Right? One of the telltale signs that you live in a dictatorship or in a regime of arbitrary rule is that knock at night when someone, maybe you, be taken away, not told, your family or any of your friends told where you've been taken, for how long, for what reason. Nelson Mandela, right? I mean, one of the most famous contemporary cases, recent cases. Uh, This is a big one, and that's why Lincoln devotes a paragraph. To it. He knows this one's tough. However, the Constitution, as you point out, does afford a provision. Okay? What does it say? Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2. You can suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus when?
1: National
0: emergency? Yeah, not in times of peace. Okay? So so far so good, right? Is it a time of peace? No. What's the problem?
1: Congress that has the right to suspend the right of
0: corpus war Okay, now how does Lincoln how does Lincoln deal with this? the next page, right? He says, look, in article 2, which is my turf, section three, the last phrase, right I am to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and boy, if I have to do that, I need to make sure that I don't violate those very laws top of 581. He says the whole of the laws which were were required to be faithfully executed were being resisted. Failing of execution in nearly one-third of the states. Must they be allowed to finally fail of execution? Even had it been perfectly clear that by the use of means necessary to their execution, some single law made in such extreme tenderness of the citizens' liberty that practically it relieves more of the guilty than of the innocent should to a very limited extent be violated. He didn't suspend the writ of habeas corpus throughout the entire United States. That's what he's implying there. To state the question more directly, and by the way, he doesn't agree with this, but he's proposing it this way. Are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces lest that one be violated? But guess what? Even if you're like, wow, I'm persuaded by that. Lincoln says, huh, I don't think I violated a law. (laughs) Even even though he tries to sell you on that idea, he pushes it even further. He says, but it was not believed that that this question was presented. It was not believed that any law was violated. And by law here, he's talking about what? The Constitution. He's talking about the Constitution. I don't think I was wrong to suspend Habeas corpus, that privilege. Now, why not? Well, let's What does Article 1, Section 8 deal with? Enumerated powers of Congress. Is that where the writ is, uh, can be suspended? No, it's not there. It's Section 9. But wait a second. Play devil's advocate with Lincoln. You guys read the Constitutional Convention notes, you saw the product of their efforts and deliberations. What does Article 1, Section 9 in general deal with? Yeah, restrictions on Congress. That's the implication. Now, technically speaking, it doesn't say Congress shall not have the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. It just says the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. So Lincoln takes that, again, at a time of crisis. he he, He parses that one very closely and says, well, it doesn't say explicitly that it's Congress who has this authority. Right, the provision of the Constitution that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when, in cases of rebellion, the public safety may require it, is equivalent to a provision that such privilege may be suspended when the public safety does require it. Objection! It's insisted that Congress, not the executive, is vested with this power. Lincoln says Congress, the Constitution doesn't say that. No, there's no precedent for it, and in fact, when Lincoln asked, "Do I have authority to do this?" the prevailing legal opinion and the prevailing the interpreter of the Constitution at that time was Justice Story. Just a story said, "This is this. This must be Congress." But the argument that Story gives is not a legal argument. It's not a constitutional argument. It's not a, a philosophical one. You know what the argument he gives? No president has ever done it until now. Oh, excuse me, not until now. It antedates Lincoln's speech. He says, since no president has ever thought to do it up until this point, I suppose presidents aren't expected to do it in a time of emergency. This really is a legislative uh, issue. That's Story's conclusion. And so Lincoln goes, that's not ironclad in my book. So One, one sec, go ahead.
1: But no
0: Congress had done it either. Oh, so you're saying well, then why why would it be to con why it would it be no, Congress's prerogative? No Congress had
1: done it, no done it.
0: Well, to be sure, but all other things being equal, where do you guys think the weight of the evidence is on this one? Uh, <laughs> Article one, section nine, can you think of a single one of those things that deals with the executive authority? <coughs> I mean, again, think what, what Gordon Lloyd had us do, right, is we he, you look at the Constitution prior to the Federalist debates, the Federalist discussion and debates with the Anti-Federalists, logically speaking, if you have an article with a section that deals with powers of Congress, and then the very next section, it's still under Article 1. What's the presumption? You're still dealing with Congress. So I think, on this one, uh, I think the weight is against Lincoln. I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying it's ironclad. I'm not saying if I were in Lincoln's place, I would have done any differently. <laughs> I think public necessity in this instance required somebody to to deal with the matter, uh, but uh, just on the terms of the Constitution, Article One, Section Nine seems to me to deal with Congress. But Lincoln it gets away by saying it doesn't explicitly say that this is a congressional authority. Um, I'm not
2: totally familiar with it, but hasn't in the recent Rumsfeld case to deal with the ridiculousness?
0: Like, again, I didn't read. I didn't read the opinion, but, but kind of presumably.
2: Has this issue ever been brought before the court, like before the
0: Rumsfeld case, or no? Like oh, I don't remember. I would think it would have, but I don't. I, a case doesn't come to mind. Can you turn up? Why an executive
1: exactly mm-hmm.
0: What do you mean?
2: Well, instead of instead of playing with the politics of this article, this problem just issue the executive order and be done with it.
0: No, he, what he did was he just, um, he didn't issue an executive order, as I understand it. What he did was, um, I mean, he, pro- he, he, would, he did some proclamations, but at first what he did was he just sent a, a telegram to the general and saying, look, if the, the necessity calls for it, I'm going to leave it to your discretion to do it. So he didn't raise a public uh, hullabaloo over it. Okay,
1: so and
0: then he, then he did, later when he proclaimed, you know, blockade, yeah, he, he issued more than one proclamation regarding the writ of habeas corpus. It became more expansive with each proclamation. Okay, but I guess what I'm trying to get at or or maybe trying to make clear to myself is
2: as we define certain powers as they pertain to certain articles with branches, why can't residents just always then
0: sidestep any of the articles by the same executive order. No, because then we wouldn't be, uh, as he puts it later, we would be in the field of political absolutism. In other words, we would then start interpreting executive power as the executive can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And Lincoln doesn't want to do that. He is doing everything he can to show that dealing with the, the most calamitous crisis that we could face in a constitutional manner. It's all about legitimacy. He doesn't want to do the right thing simply because it's the right thing. He wants to do it in the right way, which is why he waits so long about emancipation. He can't just do emancipation because it's the right thing. He can only do what we've given him power to do. And we have not, in his mind, given him power to do whatever he wants by executive proclamation. That would be dictatorship. You see what I'm saying? He can't just say, well, this is what's necessary, this is what the public wants. He is doing everything he can to show that he is using constitutional means to achieve constitutional ends. Because remember, if he doesn't do that, how does he fuel the enemy rhetorically? Lincoln is going outside of the Constitution to fight something he thinks is outside of the Constitution. So the very thing that's at stake here, in my opinion, is the perpetuity of self-government. Constitutional self-government is precisely what's at stake And if Lincoln can't use the Constitution to save the Constitution, what does it say? Not about the American Constitution. What does it say about any attempt of a free people to rule themselves in a constitutional way? Maybe it's not possible. That's precisely the theme of the Gettysburg Address. We see the seeds of it right here on July 4th, 1861. Look at the way he closes that paragraph. The Constitution itself is silent as to which or who is to exercise the power. The provision was plainly made for a dangerous emergency, right? You can only use it when there's a time of uh, rebellion. Uh, Domestic insurrection, he says, It cannot be believed. The framers of the instrument intended that in every case the danger should run its course until Congress could be called together, the very assembling of which might be prevented, as was intended in this case by the rebellion. Here in Lincoln's... Uh, I think. Well, let me ask you: What does Lincoln mean by that? Why was he ju- ultimately justified? He doesn't think he broke any law or the Constitution. Did he, he did not believe he violated the Constitution when he did this. At the end of the, I mean, bottom line: Why did he think he was justified in doing this?
2: Well, Congress isn't in session. We have to wait until they come back when people might be running a month in Maryland. And I'm thinking that if the framers took the time to put into the Constitution the recess appointment provisions to give the President power to do something with Congress isn't in session.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, would they have if had if they had thought of it been less willing to do something in a national emergency than to appoint some guy an ambassador in a recess? I'm
0: not sure what your question is.
2: The framers had, had shown in the recess provisions right, I'm with they, that they were concerned about trying to get things done when they weren't there. And Lincoln could say they just hadn't thought about what to do with habeas corpus, but if they were concerned about how you were going to get somebody appointed judge or ambassador when they were not there, they surely would
0: have been concerned. The difference is at least with judges and ambassadors and even senators, these are recess appointments in a case when you have a vacancy. Okay? In this case, we're not dealing with vacancies where somebody you need someone to do the job. I mean a literal body. I mean we can't have Lincoln, of course, for example, appointing new senators and congressmen yeah. so that he could have a Congress right away. Uh, we're dealing with an emergency that again, it's, it's like one of those situations this, what's ma- this is what makes constitutions difficult to write you can't cover every conceivable circumstance and think through on the main, do you want an executive or do you want a legislature to suspend the writ of habeas corpus? Just in principle which would you feel more safe? The legislature, all the way hands down, slam dunk, no, no doubt about it now are there not instances? Can we think of a situation? Lincoln can. <laughs> when <laughs> Congress won't be around to do something like that and the public necessity will call for it. He says this is precisely the situation. Lincoln's argument is Washington, D.C., could gone by the time
2: Congress tried to get there. So here is one of those... Virginia and Maryland surrounding the capital. Virginia was already ready to secede and Maryland
0: is a border but definitely leaning well let me play play devil's advocate here why doesn't Lincoln group the writ of habeas corpus with those other things that he acknowledged straight out were Congress's purview Congress is back in session now why did Lincoln still hold that authority under the executive prerogative (laughs) <laughs> why doesn't he concede the point, well, this is really Congress's authority, but I acted in Congress's stead just as I, I did in that, pre- previous, the, that previous paragraph? A pretty, I think that there's a, just a fairly mundane reason why he did it. Just
1: the fear that they won't be able to meet. I mean, physically they may not be able to meet. may not be able to come on that short.
0: True, but, but well, how about when they are in session? Yeah, (laughs) what if Lincoln thinks, man, I gotta do this to prosecute the war, and those copperheads, those Democrats that didn't vote for me, you know, (laughs) that don't like Republicans, those peace, those who are arguing for peace rather than war. What if Congress doesn't suspend it when I know very well that the telegrams I'm getting about what's happening in this particular section of the country say, we look, the courts are a shamble. We have got to have a way of rounding up people who are getting in the way of our prosecuting the war effort and we can't rely on the ordinary civil processes of courts. I think, because Lincoln said Lincoln learned fairly early I have got to exercise this authority I can't I can't rest entirely <coughs> upon the, you know, the, 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 the best wishes or my, my best fondest hopes for uh, Congress. Is there another hand? Go ahead
1: Doesn't it also help define martial law under his role his, uh, oh, yeah. as commander?
0: Sure, Cruz? sure Definitely. Uh, so he understands that as part of his war powers, part of that oath to, to, to be sure to take, what is it, to, to faithfully execute, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Definitely. And you know,
2: also, if after the fact he asks, you know, for that okay for Congress and they don't
0: give it, you know, that's not a power you can get back or any, person, any president coming up would be able that's to That's right. Use. And they don't give it. Um, it's, it's not until uh, March of 1863 that Congress officially authorizes the executive to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. It takes them a couple of years to say, this is our authority. I mean, they said that from the beginning. But it took them a couple of years to say, yes, Lincoln, we give you the, you know, the good housekeeping seal of approval to do this. And Lincoln wasn't going to wait ten years for and that. Two years, I'm sorry.
1: And the Senate too. He just said the good house.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs>
0: All right. Oh, I'm going through this too slow. Uh, I want, uh, let me just, just hop onto a few things here before, as we close our time here. 583. Remember my discussion of public sentiment and molding public sentiment. Here, Lincoln returns to the subject of secession. He still, he wants to take another crack at this. In the first inaugural, it was his first uh, shot across the bow of those who believe that secession is a constitutional or legal action that states could take. He disagreed. He said secession was tantamount to anarchy, that the only alternative to anarchy or despotism is constitutional self-government. A majority controlled by constitutional checks and balances, changing every now and then with the regular uh, processes of elections. That's the only way a free people uh, can legitimately rule themselves. He comes back at secession here he says at the top of 583 with rebellion thus sugar-coated they have been drugging the public mind of their section for more than 30 years in other words you don't get secession just out of nowhere guys have been chipping away at this for decades starting as far back as calhoun and now up through uh, the present time uh, the public, a certain portion of the public has come to believe that secession is not the exercise of the right of revolution, but a legitimate constitutional legal course of action you can take whenever you believe that uh, uh, there's a necessity for it. Lincoln said the public was, has been drugged on this. That is his argument. That's how pernicious these arguments have been. Um, and then again, he, he uh, raises the question of what, me, what union is, how the states are related to one another, to the union, where states even come from. Uh, And I I believe someone had raised the question before that Lincoln was incorrect about his understanding of state sovereignty. Somebody mentioned that a a day or two ago. I thought somebody mentioned that. What's that? about state sovereignty. that links. For example, bottom of 583, what does Lincoln say? He says the states have their status in the union. They have no other legal status. Top of 584, the union and not themselves separately procured their independence and their liberty. By conquest or purchase, the union gave each of them whatever of independence and liberty it has. The union is older than any of the states and in fact created them as states.
1: Charles Coatsworth Go ahead. In Madison's notes, page
0: 33. 30. This is Pinkney, by the way, not. <laughs> this is
1: Pinkney. This is Madison's <laughs> notes on Pinkney. Uh, and granted, this is an opinion. Uh, Mr. Charles Pinkney laid before the House the draft of the federal government, which had been prepared, blah, 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 uh, to be agreed upon between the free and independent states of America, etc. Well, and no surprise, it's a South Carolina. There were numerous comments. I mean, that was just the only one that I have to still have a vote to, to lay my hands on quickly. But there were numerous other comments by other delegates at the convention that said exactly the same of...
0: The question is was that the uniform belief of the founders at that time? Lincoln's argument Paris, would be I'm he sorry, go ahead.
1: each one of the 13 states separate the peace treaty from the British recognized independence the United States and then lists each?
0: Uh, there, there, could be, there could be there could be other reasons for why those were listed seriatim in that way, but I don't have that in front of me, so I, I can't really talk about that. Um, I think, in, in part, you would do that to make it clear that each of those really is now without the without the, the legal connection. All the
1: separation with each state retains freedom, and Besides you know, that, of confederation, well, by definition of the word confederation, is and alliance of independent states for common purposes technically that's correct is a balance between two i would say but but what ultimately
0: defines parts. what ultimately defines those words are the terms of the document and if the document you could say just like you say hey we heart sop right we love separation of powers and then turn around and violate it would you say that that's a truly a government of separated powers no so in that sense, they could say we're totally sovereign, but we don't get to make war anymore. We don't get to make treaties. Sorry. <laughs> That's, you know what I'm saying? So but I don't want to I don't want to uh, I don't want to raise that again. Lincoln's comment on the Confederate Constitution another way to work on public opinion, trying to point out that the Confederate States aren't interested in you knowing what the true ground of the, your rights are. What formed the Confederate States of America? Not we the people. It's we the states. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like where's the sovereignty lie with individuals? No, but with government. Gee, that sounds like divine right of kings stuff. That is there's no there's no Lockean state of nature language there. No, this is a direct refutation of Locke, refutation of Jefferson, refutation of the Declaration of Independence. Here we have governments already possessing authority. Lincoln says, wow, what happened to liberty? What happened to rights? 585, middle. They are not partial to that power which made the Constitution and speaks from the preamble, calling itself we, the people. Next page, bottom of that top paragraph. Our adversaries have adopted some declarations of independence in which... Unlike the good old one penned by Jefferson, they omit the words, all men are created equal. Why? They have adopted a temporary national constitution uh, in the preamble of which, unlike our good old one, signed by Washington, they omit we the people and substitute we the deputies of the sovereign and independent (coughs) states. Why? Why this deliberate? In other words, they intended to do this. Why this deliberate pressing out of view, public view, the rights of men and the authority of the people? Okay. We're out of time here, but let me just take us to this last paragraph where Lincoln reminds the, uh, his audience, and again, his immediate audience isn't the American people, it's their representatives. They're the ones who are doing their political deliberation, at least in terms of the near, the near term, what to do about this crisis. As a private citizen, the executive, Lincoln, could not have consented that these institutions shall perish. He had just contrasted the old Declaration of Independence with these new ones from the South. The old Constitution, the one he's trying to hold on to and preserve and maintain, and this new Constitution of the Confederate States of America, trying to show that one is all about freedom, all about rights, and the other one about the opposite. He felt that he had no moral right to shrink or even to count the chances of his own life and what might follow. In full view of his great responsibility, he has so far done what he has deemed his duty. In other words, I'm done explaining what I have done, what brought us to this state, what the context has been and is for the actions that I have taken thus, thus far. You, now who's the you here? It's Congress, House, and Senate you will now, according to your own judgment, perform yours. He sincerely hopes that your views and your action may so accord with his as to assure all faithful citizens who have been disturbed in their rights of a certain and speedy restoration to them under the Constitution and the laws. Let us renew our trust in God and go forward without fear and with manly hearts. I took the time to take us through this one uh, detailed speech because I wanted you to see a couple of things here. I wanted you to see how Lincoln teaches us to think about ourselves as a self-governing people. How when he does something, he teaches us why he's doing it. It's legitimacy, it's authority, it's constitutionality. And therewith, teaching us what we should expect from any ruler, legislator, executive, or judge. And secondly, to see in some detail how he justified the actions that some people today and even at that time criticized as being the actions of a tyrant or a dictator. Uh, just some references that if, for those of you who are more interested are interested more in this topic. We gave you two, the article by Bells and the article by Perenbacher dealing with the dictatorship issue. Uh, the Fate of Liberty, some of you might be familiar with that book by Mark Neely. Uh, deals with the questions of habeas corpus, military uh, commissions and tribunals in a lot more detail. It, it uh, won a bunch of prizes uh, back when it was written. Uh, and what he does is he looks at those who were actually arrested. Were they critics of the, the administration or were they Confederates or members of the border states? He gets very detailed. Uh, it, it's it's uh, pretty straightforward and kind of almost numerical account of how Lincoln over time expanded the use of these uh, debatable or controversial uh, powers uh, and what the impact was on public opinion, uh, etc. All right.